Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today's episode is brought to you by Rapsodo. So let's talk about the Rapsodo mobile launch monitor. This thing represents a major evolution in personal launch monitors. It's very portable. The case is about the size of your rangefinder case, and you can take it with you to the driving range, connect it to your smartphone, and it provides instant data about your shot distance, club head speed, launch angle, all that stuff. It even records stats, video, and shot tracer for you. Basically, the mobile launch monitor makes it so that you're not just mindlessly hitting balls. Instead, you're actually tracking what you're doing. And on top of that, it's very accurate. We're talking within 2% of launch monitors that cost 50 times as much. If you use our code FRIEDEGG at checkout, it's an even better deal. You can save $50 on the Rapsodo mobile launch monitor. So go to rapsodo.com, that's R-A-P-S-O-D-O.com, slash FRIEDEGG, use the code FRIEDEGG at checkout, and get pro-level launch data in the palm of your hand. I think I need to do a bit more of a fleshed-out intro here than we usually do. So Bob Crosby, my guest today is a golf historian currently working on a book about John Lowe. Lowe was one of the most influential figures in golf from the 1890s to the 1920s. He was a writer, a golf course designer, a golf course critic, and a major force on the RNA Rules Committee. He was basically everywhere. And Bob has actually been on this podcast before to discuss John Lowe. We did an episode toward the end of 2019, and then another one that was part of the history of the golf ball series that we did last year. And so if you've listened to those episodes, you'll know that what makes Bob's work about John Lowe so great is that he gives a sense of not only who Lowe was and what he did, but also of the overall picture of the debates around golf in that period. Debates about rules, about technology, and about golf courses. And we're still essentially having the same debates today. So I thought Bob would be a great person to talk to about the early history of Royal St. George's Golf Club, which, as you probably know, is going to host the 2021 Open Championship next week. Early in its life, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Royal St. George's looked a lot different than it does now, and it was pretty controversial. The course became part of these intense golf world debates that Bob Crosby writes about. Now, neither Bob nor I has looked super closely into the architectural history of the course. We know the basics, but I'm sure you could find a more detailed account of that elsewhere. Our basic intention here was to each of us do a little research on our own, then come together and discuss it. So this is really kind of a collaboration between me and Bob more than an interview. We just wanted to team up and tell a story about Royal St. George's in its early days, talk about where the course started, how it was truly a product of its time, and then why it evolved into what it is today. All right, let's get to it. Here's Bob Crosby and me on Royal St. George's. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. So 
So the original architect behind Royal St. George's was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Laidlaw Purvis. Bob, could you tell me what you know about Purvis? Purvis was a prominent doctor in London. I want to say he was an eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor who made some breakthroughs and treatments of various kinds. Purvis, though, grew up in Scotland and learned to play golf in Scotland, and he was a fairly accomplished golfer. From his home base in London, he decided to build his own golf course, formed the Royal St. George's Club, and part of what he wanted to do there was a very distinct idea about how hazards on a golf course ought to work. And that's what he built there. He built one of the early and one of the most classic Victorian golf courses in the world at the time, although there were others that were to a lesser degree, quote, Victorian. But uh, Royal St. George's always stood out among everyone at the time, as at least in its early iterations, as a classic Victorian golf course for a lot of reasons. One was the prevalence of cross hazards. Some of those were water, some were most were bunkers, some were just rough areas. But it was a it was thought to be at the time one of the most challenging golf courses in the world. And a lot of people will be surprised to hear that given the the current form of the course doesn't look much like how it's described early in its life. It was built in 1887, 1888, and it evolved tremendously over the next uh, 40 years or so, um, and then indeed after that. But before we get into some of the specifics of Royal St. George's architectural history, which is very interesting... When you say Victorian golf architecture, when you talk about the Victorian kind of philosophy of golf course design, what generally do you mean? The theory of Victorian golf architecture was a well-articulated, sophisticated theory of how a golf course ought to be designed. I think the clearest expression of that was made by Horace Hutchinson. It was in 1890 in, in one of the golfing annuals. The key concept in Victorian golf architecture is hole distance. The notion is that holes should be built at such a distance that it requires two well-executed shots, in the case of what we would call today par fours, that it would take two well-executed shots to get to the green. If you didn't execute either one of those shots well, you would not be able to reach the green, hence the importance of distance. The problem they had to deal with, though, was before fairways were irrigated, people could hit top shots that would roll out as far as a good shot, and they could reach the green, even though one of their shots was terrible. So the solution that they came up with was cross hazards to catch top shots. And that was really the genesis of the proliferation, and I'm using proliferation understates how often cross hazards were used in Victorian golf courses. But that's where they came from. On the flip side of that is that any well-hit ball, more or less straight, would engage no hazards whatsoever. Fairways were very wide. There were very few wing bunkers around greens on the theory that all good shots should be warded and all bad shots should be punished. Bunkers around greens were set away from the green, sometimes 20, 30 yards, on the theory that a good shot should have at least come close to the green and should be left alone, a bad shot that misses the green by some wide margin ought to be stuck in a bunker. It's a theory of golf architecture that's bathed in concerns about equity. 
every shot deserves a certain sort of outcome depending on the quality of the shot. That was a theory that Hutchinson laid out. It's one that was followed by, with remarkable amount of unanimity, by everybody at the time. Literally thousands of golf courses were built, mostly in England, but also in America during the 1890s and into the first decade of the 20th century, following those precepts. And that it was so convincing to so many people for so long is a testament to the influence of a Victorian moralistic worldview. In other words, every, every aspect of your life in Victorian England had a moral component, and golf was no exception. All shots in golf, good or bad, should deserve their outcomes. It's a theory of golf architecture that actually still has many adherents. It hasn't entirely gone away. Oakmont was built as a Victorian golf course, and it still is. I mean, the whole notion that that any bad shot, phones would say, deserves eternal punishment um, is a very Victorian idea. I would note in passing that Oakmont is one of the few great courses in America that has had no progeny for that reason, I suspect. But yes, it was a theory of golf architecture that was very much of its age, of its time. So to give a, a more specific idea of what this might have looked like when someone thought through the principles of Victorian golf architecture point by point, we actually have a portion of an article from Laidlaw Purvis, the designer of Royal St. George's, from I believe 1890. And he gives 14 design principles. I won't read all of them, but I'll go to a couple of them uh, just to give an idea of how kind of far he pushed this philosophy. So principle number five is that holes should be one or more drives in length. This means there are no short par threes, as we call them now. In other words, the shortest holes should be as long as a good driver drives the ball. A critical piece of the theory. The, the groundwork on which the rest of the theory is built, that you need to hit full shots well. And, and furthermore, I get the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are a few holes at the original St. Royal St. George's that were one drive in length. And at that time, that would have been, what, you know, 170, 180 yards or something like that. But Purvis seems to have gone to an effort to make sure that there weren't many holes where a good player would drive the ball well and then have a short approach he was trying to find holes where you would drive the ball well and then your approach would be another drive basically another long shot and so he was trying to find lengths of holes where if it wasn't one drive then it was two drives and if it wasn't two drives then it was three drives he wasn't looking for those in between distances a, a critical component of victorian golf architecture was exactly that multiples of full shots on various holes and let me just add, it occurred to me when I was doing some work on this, that, well, well, if that was true, why did they like St. Andrews so much? And it turns out the reason they liked St. Andrews so much is they thought it was among the Lynx courses, the one that had the most holes of the correct distance. Right. It wasn't the funky bunkers on the road hole. It wasn't Strath Bunker. It wasn't all the things we now love about St. Andrews. It was that the whole Lynx, with some exceptions were the right length. That's why it was a great golf course. And it was long for, for the day. It was the longest It was longest of all the Lynx courses in the open road, road at the time, yeah. 
Yeah, if you see Horace Hutchinson write about St. Andrews in the early 1890s in his book called Famous British Links, it goes by uh, a few different titles and, and went through a few different editions, but it's a book that's available on Google Books. Anybody can read it. That is the way. That is exactly the way that he talks about St. Andrews. This is a nice long course. You know, you have to hit two full drives to get to most of the holes and, you know, <laughs> more full drives to get to some of the other holes. And it, it, he's just noticing things about the old course that we no longer notice or think are important. Of course, things have changed because of technology. But his objection to the old course in that book, in fact, is all what he calls the banks and braids. In other words, the undulations of the course, which is one of those things now that we love about it. Right. And so it is the, the Lynx courses were their models, but for totally different reasons. Exactly. Exa yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you read those pages and you want you, you start yelling at Horace. You say, Horace, <laughs> you're missing the best part of this golf course. What are you thinking? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. So we've mentioned Horace Hutchinson a few times. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should explain briefly who he is. Horace, and, Horace Hutchinson was one of the major figures in golf in the last couple decades of the 19th century and into the 20th century. He was a prominent golfer, but he wrote prolifically and was one of the spokesmen for Victorian type golf architecture. But he wrote on all sorts of topics, and he, he appeared frequently in, in magazines and wrote several books. Interesting, speaking of Victorian architecture, he wrote a book called The Golfer's Progress, which was based on The Pilgrim's Progress, which was the most popular book in the 19th century other than the Bible. And it's the story of a fellow who goes through various tribulations to reach golf mecca, not unlike The Pilgrim's Progress, where... I think his name is Silas, goes through various tests to reach a higher level of virtue in Christianity. I mean, it's just imbued with religious concepts. And, and Victorian golf architecture is also similarly imbued. Yeah, it makes it makes golf in a game a moralistic enterprise. Deeply moralistic, yes. So a, a few other excerpts from Laidlaw Purvis's design principles. He goes on to say that safe lies should be obtainable by all classes of drivers, but all should have hazards to negotiate to obtain these lies. And, the, and when he says all, he means every time you get a good lie, you should have to negotiate a hazard. You're getting the sense, I think, here of how repetitious these courses could be. You know, there are certain standard lengths and every shot should be subject to many of the same hazards and challenges. There should be a hazard. This is number eight. There should be a hazard from every tee, the carrying of which gives an advantage. Cross bunkers. Cross bunkers. Um, every shot needs to be an airborne, presumably well-hit shot to carry the cross bunkers. Part, though, of the theory of Victorian architecture is that if you do that, you're in pretty good shape. You've got a wide open fairway, fairly flat terrain. And you should have, you know, obviously uh, you're in a good position to hit your next, quote, full shot. John Lowe had a great description of those golf courses. He called them gardens of inaccuracy. <laughs> in other words, if you could carry the bunkers, you could hit it pretty much anywhere. The fairways on those courses were typically extremely wide. I'm talking 60 to 90 yards wide in a lot of cases. But the key, the key test for everybody was whole length, number one, and number two, carry the bunkers, and if you, or hazards. Sometimes it was water. If you could do those two things, 
you really shouldn't engage the golf course that much. It was just a matter of executing shots. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think we're starting to get close to right here in this philosophy is how easy these courses suddenly become for good players, right? If you're, if you're a player who's able to get the ball lofted, then, you know, these courses might become somewhat boring. They commit what we today consider the high sin of golf architecture, which is they're easiest for the good player and they're the hardest for the bad player. Part of the revolution of strategic golf architecture, maybe 15 or so years later, is they reverse that, that good architecture should be the most challenging for the better players and should be easier for weaker players if they so elect to play the golf course you know, in a conservative way. So just to give a, a couple of more samples from these design principles, um, number 10 is when any hazard is carried, a good lie should be obtained. Again, you see this kind of mechanistic, if you carry the hazard, you should get a good lie. There's a perfect sort of rigid fairness to every shot. Number 12 is there should be a bunker in front of every green, <laughs> which cannot be avoided without the loss of distance and risk in front of every green. It, it, it Yes. I mean, we chuckle and I think he lived up to the motto, but I would let me just note that the that the original maiden hole, the sixth, mm -hmm. in its original iteration, it's all gone now. But in the original iteration, you had to carry a thirty or forty foot dune. This is a par three, thirty to forty foot dune. Beyond that was a slit bunker. So he lived up to his motto. This, this is this is a green. That, although you had to carry a sixty foot, a forty foot dune, you still had to carry a bunker in front of the green. <laughs> It was a terrifying hole. You can still get a sense of it by going out to Real St. George's, and you, the, the, the angle of the shot now is different, but you can sort of get a feel for what the way it used to have been. Basically, you can stand in the middle of the fifth fairway. Right, exactly. And look toward where the sixth green currently is. Right. You go straight over the tallest dune in that area of the course, and that's what the maiden hole used to be. And it was a world-famous hole, but it only lasted for 20 years about. Can I give you a quick story about the origins of the name? Absolutely. The it, the name was was a, was got from a medieval torture device called the Iron Maiden. And it was a device that they put on people's heads, I think. And they would basically ratchet it down until it got tighter and tighter and tighter and you told whatever you or you confessed whatever religious sin you, you you needed to confess, but it was it was a medieval torture device. <laughs> and so that was the uh that was the intended effect of the golf hole. And it was what the golf course was meant to be, a torture test. Yes. Right. And there were a number, in the original Royal St. George's, there were a number of other one-shot holes, these one-drive holes right around 180 to 200 yards right. that carried these big hazards, dunes or, or big waste areas, and, and were blind from the tee. And all of those have been changed uh, or eliminated in the current version of the course. There was a Sahara bunker that's gone. There's a big bunker within the third or fourth hole you still have to carry. The, four, the fourth hole, there's a big bunker you have to carry yeah. off the tee. The third hole was used to be the Sahara hole. That's that's no longer. That's no longer there. And then you still have to carry. There's a par five in the back. What is it, 15, 14? The, the Suez you have to carry, which is basically a muddy creek in front of the green. Right. But most 85% of, most of them are gone. 
So there's some vestiges of those old carry hazards, but right. um, but they're not really a big part of the course anymore. And they were certainly a huge part of the course early on, and um, and a reason why it was respected and 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 feared early on. Right. So the final design principle, number 14 from Purvis, kind of sums up a lot of it. He says, a typical hole is one having a hazard from the tee, requiring a fair shot to carry it, a hazard for the shot through the green, the carrying of which hazard makes the player, and a drive into the putting green, carrying the hazard in front of it. Where each of these shots is properly played, a good lie should be obtained. That's pretty much it. A carry hazard off the tee, a carry hazard on the approach. If you make the carry, you should have a good outcome. Whether the original Royal St. George's really lived up to this, I don't know. I, we can talk about that. I think the wildness of the terrain sort of uh, got in the way of these principles being perfectly embodied by the course. But certainly there was an attempt to put these hazards in the way of players on a consistent basis. I have seen some drawings of what must have been close to the original golf course, and it did live up to those ideals. It was uh, just replete with cross bunkers that just lacerated the golf course all over the place. Now, all those, were, they tended to be tamed down. It must have been a miserable golf course for a bogey golfer to play, who literally, or almost literally every hole, would have feared and trembled about being able to carry whatever the drive cross hazard was and whatever the cross hazard was in front of the green, uh, it couldn't have been fun to play for a, a weaker golfer. So now that we've gotten an idea of the Victorian philosophy of golf architecture, how does this philosophy contrast with that of John Lowe and the strategic school? Could you get, just give me a kind of a primer for what the strategic school is in opposition to the Victorian mindset? Yeah, let me let me come at that with a story about the old course in circa 190 well 1899 and then the, the, they added some bunkers and then they added more bunkers in 1904 over the winter of 0405. John Lowe was involved in both of those. He was on the rules committee at the time and also for part of that time on the on the on the green committee. There were proposals at the time because a lot of the gorse to the right side of the outward nine had been trampled down and, and, and died, and it, which made the right side of the outgoing holes very, very wide. So there was a, there was a feeling at the time that we need, they needed to narrow those, those holes. One of the proposals was classically Victorian. Let's just build a lot of cross bunkers. And there were a lot of people that thought, well, of course, that's what we do. I like to think, although the record is spotty, I like to think that my man Lowe was the one that stood in front of that train and said, no, we're going to build some bunkers on the sides of those holes, exactly where you would want a perfect drive to land. And that's what they did over the course of two rounds of changes in 1900 and then later in 0405. They built 15 or 16 new bunkers, which are still there, uh, along the right side of the outward holes, mostly on two, three, and four. They were extraordinarily controversial. First of all, they weren't cross bunkers. And second, as I mentioned a second ago, they were right where you wanted to hit your drive. What were you thinking? <laughs> what were you thinking? And Lowe's response was, well, a good player will skirt the bunkers, and but that's the best way into the green. 
And so he'll take that risk. If he pulls it off, great. If he doesn't, he's going to be hammered. But the whole idea of building cross hazards around there was, it apparently was rejected out of hand. I didn't, I don't know of any discussion of the topic, but it relates back to Lowe's idea that that, uh, Victorian golf courses were gardens of inaccuracy. And he wanted to present a challenge to to the better golfer. And I think he worked out in sort of a stumbling way the idea that, you know, we want to challenge the better golfer. We're going to do that on the old course. He carried that over to Woking, which was his home course in London. And presto changeo, his friend Harry Colt sees what's going on, likes it. A bunch of other younger architects and a, a new school of architecture was born. And with remarkable rapidity, I mean remarkable rapidity, Victorian ideas about how a golf course ought to be designed disappear. With almost as much rapidity, the courses themselves start to disappear. They start to be rebuilt fairly quickly. Now, part of that was the Haskell Ball had come along, which required virtually every course in Britain to be lengthened. But that alone wouldn't explain why they redesigned and and, and repurposed bunkers and other hazards. I mean, there was a complete change in how how those courses looked and how they played. And it wasn't just a matter of moving tees back. It was a whole new system of bunkering and other hazards. And that had to do with Lowe, Colt, and other younger Edwardians revolting, as other Edwardians were in other contexts, against the moralistic universe of their Victorian forefathers. To give an idea of how quickly this shift you're talking about happened, the Haskell Ball was introduced in the early 1900s, and it went much farther than the previous gutta percha ball much farther instantly changed how the game of golf was played i believe it was around 1903 1904 that the powers that be in the game really started realizing what was happening <laughs> and that courses would need to be changed a little earlier than that but go ahead a little earlier yeah how, so it, what would be what would be a better date the, the, for that the the, the gutta percha ball i mean excuse me the haskell ball was introduced in late to britain at least it came to america earlier because it was an american invention but it was introduced in britain first in late 1901 right okay uh the rna indicates early on it's in the next year says we're gonna we have to do something about this it's too long and then they back off in 1903 but by 1903-04 the the debates are ferocious about the ball you're generally right in the sense that by 0304 when it's clear the rna is not going to ban it and they completely chickened out on that everybody said well then we've got to do something about our golf courses Right. And so that's why you see golf courses starting to change around 1904, 1905, right. 1906, and through the end of the decade. Right. And it seems like when it came time to make these course changes, not only were they lengthened, but many of the courses were changed philosophically. The old cross hazards were taken away and strategic bunkering, sometimes done by the likes of Harry Colt, was uh, installed. You see this at many, many courses in England and Scotland, and it is a, a, a remarkable thing because it was just in, again, the early 1900s that John Lowe went to Woking and made those changes to the holes there that kind of transformed their uh, strategic character. And that idea just proved to be very contagious. Quick story, if I can. Sure. 
Woking was designed originally by Willie Dunn as a classic Victorian golf course, replete with cross hazards everywhere. Lowe and Stuart Payton, his buddy at Woking, said this isn't working. They they re reposition a lot of bunkers. They build a famous centerline bunker on the fourth hole. Huge controversy among the members. They can't believe that he's putting bunkers where he want people want to put their best drives. Huge controversy. Tom Simpson is at the time a young solicitor in London and drives out to Woking to see what all the fuss is about. Walks around the golf course with a couple of members who express their outrage about the work that Lowe had done at Woking. Goes back and decides that day that golf architecture is so interesting. I want to become a golf architect. Leaves his legal practice and starts out as a you know in in the business of designing golf courses because of what he took to be a really interesting intellectual breakthrough at Woking. And became one of the most interesting architects and writers of the era. I think that Americans underrate Tom Simpson or don't know enough about Tom Simpson. I, I believe our, our friends in, in Britain and Europe know more about him. But he uh, was a fascinating and brilliant figure. Fascinating figure. He really got it. And I couldn't agree more. He didn't do any courses in the States, which is part of the problem. Right. And he didn't do actually all that many courses in Britain. He did a lot more in France and in Europe. More Fontaine, by the way, is the best day of golf anyone could possibly ask for, his best course in France. But Tom Simpson got it early on. And not only did he get it, he decided to change his life almost on the spot when he saw what was going on at Woking. All right. So we, we've got a sense of where the philosophy of golf architecture ends up going in the first decade of the 20th century. But going back for a minute to the original iteration of Royal St. George's, which was built in the late 1880s. You know, th this is there, there are so many interesting things about this course. I've been looking into it a little bit over the past few days. And, and so I'm by no means an expert on its early history. I'm sure the club histories do a better job of accounting for how the course evolved in its early decades. But you, you've talked a little bit about it. The early maps indicate that this was very much an attempt to embody the Victorian philosophy of golf course design. You had these carry hazards, you had these standard hole lengths, and it was all meant to be a, a test of golf in the way that the Victorians thought tests of golf should be. But I wanted to add one more wrinkle here. Uh, something I discovered in an article from the Golfing Annual. Uh, <laughs> here's how an anonymous author describes Royal St. George's in, in its very early days, right? This The course was just a year or two old at this point. This author says, a tall red flag is placed at the spot beyond which a scratch player ought to place his tee shot and shows the line of the bunker which should be carried from the tee by a well-struck ball. For those who doubt their ability to carry the tee bunkers, a tall blue flag shows the spot for which the ball should be played. To arrive at this, the refuge, a hazard must be negotiated, and generally another hazard must be crossed from it. Okay, so there's this little place that they called the refuge. If you can't make the carry off the tee, go ahead and play for the refuge, but it's kind of tricky to get there, and then you have another hazard to carry from the refuge. And there's a tall blue flag that marks the spot there. <laughs> By carrying the scratch bunker from the tee, a great advantage is gained, 
as in most instances, the player who has sought the refuge cannot reach the green in the same number of strokes as he who has successfully negotiated the far bunker. Okay, so we've got the red flag in the uh, in the ideal landing zone. We've got the blue flag marking the refuge for the cowardly players. And then the putting greens are shown in all cases by tall white flags and the holes by short ones of the same color. And so once again, you have a tall white flag marking the spot where the green is and and then you have the regular flag for the hole. So you're just ima- I'm just imagining this as a kind of grid. <laughs> Right where you have these different points, and literally you're being shown by flags where to play your ball. It doesn't get much more prescriptive than that. You don't see that anymore, and people would almost laugh at it, I suppose. But it that was I didn't know that's new to me. But that was totally in character for Purvis. He was a very very strong character. Sought at the same time he was writing that to establish a British golf union that would usurp the RNA's role in rules administration. And it would be basically a a golf union that he or courses in England would control. Extremely powerful force in the game that it took the Scots almost a decade or more to figure out how to respond to. To shift the subject slightly, I mean, there was this huge split between the conservative Scottish golfing contingent and the English progressives. And Purvis was one of those progressives, which I have a better way to play golf. The Scottish game is sort of a primitive provincial game. We here in England know better, and we're going to show you how to do it. And when we say a Scottish conservative golfer, maybe traditionalist would uh, would would be the word whereas the Victorian English of the period, you know, in all domains of society, were very interested in progress, very future-oriented as opposed to past-oriented, right? There, there was a real idea that they were going to perfect society, that it was possible to perfect society, and they were currently engaged in that project. And, and this sense, you know, suffused a lot of society at the time and it certainly made its way into golf, where this group of Victorian, primarily English golfers were saying, we can figure out a way to perfect this game. We can make progress. You know, we're smarter than people were in the past, and so we're going to make it better. And Purvis was really trying that at Royal St. George's with these innovations with the flags and just trying to make the game perfect. Uh, to understand Purvis is to under, is to get a window on the Victorian mindset in the sense that he brought to golf the same zeal Victorian reformers brought to cleaning up the sanitation systems in London and straightening old medieval streets in London and building hospitals and establishing police forces. In other words, in rationalizing what had been a sort of a helter-skelter mess in London and in other cities in England at the time. They brought that same zeal to golf. They were going to straighten it out. They were going to fix it, and they knew how to fix it. There's an underlying hint that I won't get into of they used similar arguments to justify some of the English imperialism at the time. We're going to bring civilization to India or Ireland or Kenya or whatever. The, you know, and, and they viewed Scotland as a backwater in the same sense. We're going to fix your sport. And they had no doubt they could do it right. None. That said, 
there were definitely some figures in this next generation of golfers who pushed back against Victorian golfers who liked Royal St. George's. Bernard Darwin was particularly affectionate of the course, and I think that he recognized its flaws while at the same time, in spite of himself, enjoying playing there. And here's what he says about it in his book, The Golf Courses of the British Isles, which is the the greatest, I think is the greatest golf travel book ever. Would you agree uh, with that? Yeah, it, it's, it's wonderful. It, it repays rereading. Go ahead. So he says, sorry, this is 1910, right? This is 1910. Yeah. So this is, this is moving forward a a good bit. We're kind of going backwards and forwards in time here. He says, sandwich has a charm that belongs to itself. And I frankly own myself under the spell, the long strip of turf on the way to the seventh hole that stretches between the sand hills and the sea, a fine spring day with the larks singing as they seem to sing nowhere else, the sun shining on the waters of Pegwell Bay and lighting up the white cliffs in the distance. This is as nearly my idea of heaven as is to be attained on any earthly links. Confound their politics, one feels disposed to cry. Frustrate their knavish tricks. Why do they want to alter this adorable place? I know they are perfectly right, and I have even agreed with them that this is a blind shot and that an indefensively bad hole, but what does it matter? This is perfect bliss. Of course Sandwich is capable of improvement and will doubtless be improved. Whatever happens, the larks will continue to twitter, the sun will still be shining on Pegwell Bay, the charm can never be gone. It is, at any rate, very delightful now. And so let us go and play the first hole and enjoy ourselves without being too desperately critical. I think that's a wonderful description of loving a course that you know is flawed. And it seems that what Darwin loved about Royal St. George's was the piece of land, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of lynx land. And it, it it strikes me that Purvis was trying to make this kind of mechanical course, this perfectly fair course, but he was working with one of the most unruly pieces of land that you could find in England, right? right. <laughs> and so it seems like the land was resisting him at every turn, and yet he, he chose to put the course there. But the, the charm of the land and the wildness of it and the unfairness that crazy terrain introduces to the game was always there in spite of the efforts of the designer to mute those unruly characteristics. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much he could have done. I mean, it, because of the land, the land he was working from. And it is just a gorgeous spot. It's whatever you feel about the golf course. A day at Sandwich is just like no other. It's just fantastic. But uh, getting back to the Darwin piece, I've often wondered if Darwin wasn't writing to his good friend Lowe. Mm-hmm. Because Lowe didn't like Royal St. George's. What did, what did John Lowe say about Royal St. George's? He, he and it was only in passing, and he he objected to the carry features. He said it was just too much of that, and he just didn't think it was interesting. In fact, he didn't want to have it as a, an open rotor course. He thought the open rotor courses should be limited to what he took to be more traditional linksy type courses, like St Andrews, obviously Prestwick at the time, uh, Hoylake. He was a big fan of, but I I wonder if, if Darwin wasn't. Uh, sticking uh, low in the ribs with that a little bit. Well, it's almost like the current debate about Torrey Pines. I'm, I'm not saying that Royal St. George's is really anything like Torrey Pines, but 
the structure of the debate is really similar, where there's a group of people who insist on pointing out the design shortcomings of Tory Pines. But then there's another group who comes back and say and says, yeah, OK, like it's not the best design course in the world. But how about that piece of land? What a wonderful piece of land. What a wonderful place to be. And then also, how about the great championships that have been played there? They've always been dramatic and, and fun to watch. And so what are we complaining about? And it was so similar with Royal St. George's where the open championships that were played there were generally, especially the first one in 1894, were very well regarded, were thought to be good championships where a good test of golf was administered. And then furthermore, what a great place to spend an afternoon or an evening or a morning. It is so similar in so many ways to how we talk about Torrey Pines now. Yeah, l- l- lunch at uh, Ross St. George's after a morning round and then you're heading off for an afternoon round is just wonderful. Just wonderful. What are your thoughts about the course as it stands today? I played it eight, nine years ago. So I, my, my memory is somewhat dim, but I loved it. I had a great time there. It was, it, was a, it was a beautiful day. I didn't play particularly well, but it didn't matter. On great courses, how you play is pretty much irrelevant. I think it's going to be a great test. Did you see any lingering indications of the course's origins as this kind of ultimate test case for Victorian design? Or has that pretty much gone away from the course? You know, the, the only the only part I saw that jumped out at me was the Suez Canal hole. Mm-hmm. Carrying that water, that little body of water matters on your second shot on the par five. You know, the, the, the current maiden, you still have to carry a little hole, a little hill, I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed the course. I, at the time, to be honest with you, I didn't appreciate its significance in the history of golf architecture. And I wasn't paying attention as I probably should have been. Well, it it is this sort of interesting example of a course that started firmly rooted, maybe as firmly rooted as it possibly could have been in one philosophy of golf architecture and eventually gradually over the years got brought back to another philosophy. You know, it just shows how debates about golf course architecture worked in that period, right? There was a real give and take. People were very invested in arguing about golf course architecture and the consequences of it, of that debate, were pretty easy to see. Changes were made to these courses. And so there were there were real stakes, right? And so, you know, who won the argument? I suppose that's too uh, simple of a phrase to use because these arguments are ongoing, but it really mattered who was most persuasive. It mattered to them passionately because they viewed the arguments really ran in parallel. Arguments about golf courses and arguments arguments about rules really ran in parallel into the into the eighteen nineties into the next into the twentieth century. But it mattered. It mattered to them deeply because it mattered. The golf course determined the kind of game golf would be, and that's why it mattered so much to them. People don't appreciate how much of the history of golf is oppositional in that sense. It is not just a story of great champions following great champions and great rounds of golf and all that. Beneath the surface were very serious arguments that articulate, smart men took deeply seriously because they viewed 
their debates as instrumental in shaping the future of the game. And that's why Lowe felt so strongly about Royal St. George's. Conversely, that's why Laidlaw Purvis himself felt so strongly about St. George's. He was trying to make a statement about where golf ought to go, among other things. And he ran into opposition of different sorts. But that sort of opposition, that sort of the, the tug of war back and forth between different conceptions about golf and how it ought to be played ideally was a thread that goes all through the early years of golf. One of the biggest, most consequential events in golf that is talked about almost never is golf's huge popularity it's exploding popularity in England starting about 1880 because the English brought to the game a different conception of how it ought to be played. And that set off a chain of arguments that went on at least into the 1930s. Arguably, I think it's still going on. But the English uh, uh, love of the game had huge consequences for its, 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 uh, how, how it played out over the next 100 years. And the English conviction that they could improve the game, that they had a better idea of how golf could be played and their, their really determined efforts to bring that philosophy into being in the courses they built and in the rules that they attempted to establish. And, and that it seems like that created, that was the seed that sort of created this lively back and forth that we see in the 1890s and the uh, early 1900s. But, uh, but certainly this is ongoing now. I mean, you know, we've talked previously about how discourse about golf has degraded since this period. You know, this was, this was a high point of discussion of golf writers defended their positions eloquently wrote about the game beautifully in a way that we just don't do anymore. But aside from the fact that the quality of the debate has declined significantly since this period, do you see this fight kind of ongoing in discussion of the game today? I see it all the time. I'm, I think there's a modern assumption that golf is pretty much what it is, although people have trouble nailing down exactly what it is means. Right. There is, for that reason, I think a reluctance to get into debates today over foundational issues. I think in the 1890s into the 1900s, that was exactly what they were arguing about, and they knew it, and they were passionate about that. And, it, and, and, and in that sense, the rules in golf architecture were sort of bound up in the same ball of wax. I think that their basic tensions between those progressives like Purvis and traditionalists like Lowe, Cole, and other people that favor the older Scottish game, those tensions really track through the history of the game into our time. Uh, you know, there are debates today about, for example, when a ball moves, when you address it, they've changed the rule about that. That debate could have been taken out of the debates over the rules in 1900. You know, do we do a separate factual finding about whether he intended to move it? Or do we just, if you've addressed the ball, there's the penalty, um, that sort of thing. Lowe would have been on the side, the traditionalist side. Purvis would have been on the side of the, let's do a factual finding about intent. They, they play out in golf architecture in similar ways and arguments about what makes for a good hole and what makes for a bad hole. 
Tom Doak stirred that pot with his confidential guide to golf courses 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. That pot is still being stirred in golf sites like Golf Club Atlas and other places. So they're still going on. I mean, I think you can argue that the beginnings of modern golf can be traced to three events that happened over about 18 months. One was the promulgation of the first uniform code by the RNA after a big fight over whether we should have a British golf union. That happened in late 1899, essentially 1900. John Lowe, a year later, articulates for the first time the basic principles of strategic golf architecture and sets off a firestorm. Three months later, the Haskell Ball appears in Britain, and that sets up a firestorm. Arguably, all three of those debates, rules, golf architecture, and balls, those debates are still going on. They've changed character, they're different vocabularies, different players, some more articulate than others, but the basic issues still haunt the game. I don't know if haunt's the right word, are still at the heart of the game. But over that remarkable 18-month, two-year period, everything falls into place that sets up the debates we've had since. And it was just, you know, it, it, and Royal St. George's was part of that. Uh, it was part of the architecture debate. But Purvis was at the time, actually, more famous for his views on the rules. Uh, he had a very strict sort of equity, reasonable rules, simple rules based on a couple of equitable ideas and ran headlong into RNA on that. And then the ball. So I, it was a remarkably fertile moment in the game uh, that, that historians, I don't think, have fully appreciated because they tend to get focused on Harry Vard's great victories here with their J.H. Taylors or whatever. It, it, it was, and it was deeply oppositional. Deeply. They fought like cats and dogs. I think that's a good place to finish up. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I appreciate it and hope you enjoy the Open. Thanks. Delightful. Thank you. Before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to Lee Patterson, who tracked down some of the primary sources that Bob Crosby and I mentioned in this episode. Lee finds a lot of cool golf-related stuff in old newspapers and magazines, so I'd recommend giving him a follow on Twitter, at Golf Chronicle. One more thing, to accompany this episode, we made a post on thefriedegg.com that features a variety of materials on Royal St. George's. We've got vintage photos, we've got excerpts from contemporary articles, And best of all, we've got some additional thoughts from Bob about how Victorian golf architecture is often misunderstood as primitive or rudimentary when, in fact, it was based on a very sophisticated theory, a very intentional theory. As always, really interesting stuff from Bob. All right, we should be back soon with an Open Championship preview podcast. So see you then, and thanks for listening. Thank you.